Hello, this is Dr. Ken Spiegelman, and we are here for Pediatric Podcast Pearls. We are so grateful to have Dr. Alyssa Bennett, who is our Division Head of Adolescent Medicine, to come to speak to us about sexually transmitted illnesses in our pediatric and adolescent population. Dr. Bennett, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so in prepping for this podcast, I was sort of overwhelmed by numbers that I was reading in the literature. Uh, the first one that I read was of the one half of 26 million new cases of sexually transmitted illnesses, half of them came from 15 to 24 year olds, a big chunk of our population that we serve. Yes. And, and the other one that actually I saw in the Hartford Current today was our rates of syphilis have increased 755% from 2012 to 2021. I must say there are many of us who actually have never even seen a case of it with an increase actually nationally in those babies born with it. And as they stated, many of these people coming in are not symptomatic. So I wanna know if we could address some of those numbers, but before I do, we're we talk about STIs and STDs. Is that a matter of <laughs> the semantics, or do we uh, look upon them differently? Yeah, they're the same. But I laugh because I got a message from a patient who was like, "Did you check me for STDs or STIs?" And I'm like, "Great news, both." So the the CDC changed their like terminology from STDs to STIs saying, you know, this is an, it's an infection, you can treat it. Most of the time it goes away, depending on the, the, you know, illness, as opposed to a disease, which makes you think like it's longitudinal. Again, there's a wide range. So I, I use the term STDs because I think it's the most um, common one in, in that most patients know about and are familiar with. Um, but the, the technical term is STIs. Oh, okay, great. Because I see them interchange and yes. I wonder if one of them has more of a labeling effect on patients that they think they have an illness rather than a disease. I don't really think it yeah. does. I just think one of, they want to know whether they have it or not. So exactly. before, we, before we talk about screening, could you talk to us a little bit about the presentation of some of the more common sexually transmitted diseases in children and adolescents? I would say, and this is what I tell my patients as well, that like the most common symptom of an STD is no symptoms. And that's why I'm recommending screening. So a lot of times when, when patients are like, no, I don't you know, want testing for an STD, I'm fine. I'm like, oh, how do you know you don't have one? They're like, well, I don't have any, in fact, I don't have any symptoms. I feel fine. And I'm like, ah, guess what? Most of the time you don't have any symptoms when you have an STD and then they, and then they get concerned and then oftentimes they're, they're more likely to, to agree to testing. So most of the time with gonorrhea and chlamydia, no symptoms whatsoever, asymptomatic. So we think, I always think about as chlamydia as not having a lot of symptoms, but even gonorrhea, GC, Correct. not the discharge Correct. all, all the, all the time. Correct. When I have a patient, so with a, if a male presents with, you know, penile discharge, who's sexually active, like that's chlamydia or gonorrhea or both 
until proven otherwise. So um, with females, right, they, they may just have dysuria, which a lot of people I think kind of jump to the conclusion it's a UTI. But in adolescents and young adults, right, they're able to give you a full history of whether they have other UTI symptoms or not. A three-year-old isn't going to tell you all the symptoms of a UTI. So if you have a, a sexually active patient who's just saying, oh, it like, you know, hurts when I pee, but they don't have urgency or frequency or hematuria, most likely it's gonorrhea or chlamydia um, until proven otherwise. Right. I was just going to ask, and you just addressed it, the overlapping symptoms of a UTI and a sexually active female yes. or male and those with a sexually transmitted illness. In fact, I was reading, as I said, in prepping that 50% of uh, some STIs are missed because they were initially treated as UTIs. People just mm -hmm. thought that's what they were. Now, how about the last one that we mentioned that's making an, a real surge in the United States, syphilis? Does that often present in an asymptomatic method? Yeah, so often asymptomatic. I will admit I've never diagnosed it. Um, but I have screen, I screen for it routinely. So the, the, the CDC recommends screening for syphilis for patients who are at increased risk and for pregnant women. And so, you know, for patients with a history of incarceration, um, and then they also mention geography. So I think it depends on what your like regional and local rates are. I would say in, I, you know, work in, in my clinic is in Farmington. And so in the greater Hartford area, I'd say we, we are at, um, we're in an, a higher risk population. So I screen my patients routinely for syphilis and I typically combine it with HIV screening, right? So as of January, the state of Connecticut has recommended, um, annually offering patients 13 and over, HIV testing, HIV screening um, in the state of Connecticut. And so this is a nice opportunity to normalize screening, right? Just like I'm, you know, testing them to, for anemia, I'm also gonna offer testing for uh, HIV. And if I am doing blood work, um, I typically combine an RPR to screen for, for syphilis. Okay, so you're making this an entire screening package. Yeah, because if I'm gonna do blood work, <clears throat> then I'm, I'm going to, you know, and part of, you know, routine screening for teens who are sexually active is, is also testing for HIV. So when I have a teen who says, you know, I want to be tested for everything and they're asymptomatic, I test for gonorrhea, chlamydia, HIV, and, and an RPR if I'm sending them to a lab to check HIV. We also, there's also a point of care test for HIV with a fourth generation testing that gives results in about 20 minutes. So if they have the point of care testing, then I wouldn't necessarily um, do the the RPR. But again, we're we're seeing, as you mentioned, we're we're across the country, we're seeing uh, significant increased rates of syphilis. And I think the, the the CDC hasn't changed their they haven't said okay, you should screen everyone. It's really based on risk factors. And I would say, in at least in the greater Hartford area and in more ur urban areas in Connecticut, I would say that we're we should be testing, we should be screening for syphilis. Okay, uh, you know, why don't we segue into screening a little bit more and then we'll talk about treatments at the end. Great. 
You mentioned screening. Let's talk mm-hmm. about ages. What ages would you recommend routine screening? Mm-hmm. So there's routine screening and then there's universal screening. Okay. Which is a little bit different. Let's, let's talk about the difference <clears throat> if there is. Yeah. So for routine screening, right, it's, you know, screening based on if there's an indication to screen. So if I have had a patient, regardless of their age, who's ever had sex, then I recommend, you know, annual, at least annual chlamydia screening, right? That's kind of like the metric. That's a, um, a CDC recommendation for females. Same, and I apply the same thing to males, you know? So if, if, they've, if they've ever had sex before, then I, I recommend and offer STD testing with gonorrhea and chlamydia at least once a year. And but more frequently you, based on partners. Excuse me, but can you believe all of our patients to say whether they've had sex right. or not? I don't. Right, exactly. So there is, again, the going back to kind of routine screening, if a patient under the age of 13 reports sexual activity, then that's when it may be as a mandated reporter, you may need to consider, you know, conducting DCF and okay. there may be different evaluations. So I just want to throw that in there. Um, not, not always, um, right. Sometimes like 12 year olds experiments and I would still kind of do routine screening. Um, but yes, so that you asked a great question of how do you know a, a teen is, um, reporting accurately to you. And I think there's a lot that, that leads up to that. So one is, you know, making sure that as providers, we have confidential one-on-one time with all of our teens ages, you know, 12 and up or 13 and up. And that that's kind of just part of the regular visit and that the teen knows what their rights are, right? So a a teen legally can um, agree to STD testing and treatment and birth control and so many things. But if they think that everything's going to be shared with their parent, they may not agree to that. So having that one on time with patients, I tell them, you know, what we discuss is private or confidential. I'm not going to share it with your parent unless I'm concerned about your safety. Where is that kept in the medical record since legally the medical record is owned by the family until they're 18, correct? Um, Not the parts that are protected by law. So it it varies from state to state. So in the state of Connecticut, um, teens have the legal, minors have the legal right to those certain, you know, to mental health care, to STD care treatment, you know, reproductive health. Um, substance use treatment. So those can be in a sensitive part of the record. And it really depends on your electronic health record and and system. In your clinic, do you segregate those out on the electronic medical record that only teen can have access to? Yes, the teen doesn't have access to to it. It, Essentially, it's only within our system. It's not um, like medical records doesn't send it without permission if something is more sensitive as a sensitive note. Um, it does not go to the patient or, you know, parent portal. Um, it's not re- released. So we have, um, we have the ability within our system of, of checking, uh, of having a normal non-confidential regular note and then yeah. a separate small one. I know in our, my, my colleagues in primary care for all of their um, well child checks, they, they automatically have a a section that is a separate section of the well child that doesn't go to the portal. So so parents aren't even seeing it, even if everything is normal or negative. Okay. Um, so that all of the patients, you know, well child check notes that are being released, you know, look the same. 
Great. Could you talk about strategies using opt-out screening? Um, in the, you know, this came to light when I was in practice five, six years ago when we started to do more STI screening and the parents would get a bill because sometimes their insurance yeah. companies would not pay for it. And they say, why are you testing my child? Uh, rather than doing opt-out by saying it's universal. We do it for everyone. What is your opinion and how do you recommend doing that? Yeah, I think that is my sense is that a lot of pediatricians offices have started to transition to universal screening for all of the reasons that you you mentioned, that it's really hard um, to either not bill insurance, meaning your office pays for the costs of the testing, um, or to, you know, like not test and send the patient elsewhere to get confidential testing, like parenthood or free SEE clinic, right? It's really important to provide the care when they're there. And so a lot of patients' offices are doing universal screening where they say, this is part of your well-child check, right? We check your, like a, you know, CBC or point of care hemoglobin. We, um, and we like test for infections. Okay. Right. And, and that is, and, and different practices have different age cutoffs. Um, so some have 16, some have 15. Um, I think it, it's, it's very, I wish insurance companies made this easier. Right. Right. And I think and it varies. Don't. You're and, absolutely and it varies. Uh, and I do know that, you know, colleagues have shared that when they transitioned to universal screening in practices where they felt that they asked questions and, you know, they had private one-on-one time, they talked about confidentiality, right? They were trying to do everything to make teens feel comfortable, you know, sharing information, that their chlamydia rates significantly increased with universal screening. Okay. Right? Super. And, and I think the same thing applies, I would assume, to uh, utilization of opt out for the HPV vaccine if one wants to look upon it that way for a greater exactly. compliance Okay. Exactly. No, so I think I, I think it's the same. It's it's the language and how you approach a topic. So saying, here's what I recommend, you know, here are all those the shots that I recommend today. Sound good? And then do it. Same thing when I'm screening a, a teen for an STD, <clears throat> right? If I ask a patient, if I ask my teen do you think you have an STD? Do you want to get tested? They're like, no, Dr. Bennett, like I use condoms every time or like I don't have any symptoms or I know my partner is a virgin, right? They have lots of different reasons. But if I say, hey, you know, I'm so glad to hear that you've been, you know, you're taking your birth control, you're using condoms really consistently. That's awesome. However, despite that, I still really recommend like testing for STDs. Is it okay if we send your urine? which we've already collected because we check collected on everyone. Is it okay if I send your urine um, to check for gonorrhea and chlamydia just to make sure you don't have any infections? Well, and it's and, much easier for them to say. And yes. I may actually add that um, I know the uh, integrated network through uh, Connecticut Children's Medical Center, at least in the past year, was using the metric of STI screening in our females yes. and as to whether yes. we use that metric and met it which I would hope to think that insurance companies will be looking upon that more and more, just as they do other metrics, uh, yeah. for sure. And just as a logistical, practical component, 
you always ask to ha ask for the uh, patient's, the adolescent's cell phone number. If you, how do you usually communicate results? And I guess you only communicate the positive results, correct? Yes. So, yes, we only communicate positive results. And I tell patients, if anything comes back abnormal, I will call you. Like, I will find you, <laughs> right? Because, like, we call them, we call the school. Like, we really want to make sure they get treated um, from a public health standpoint and for, for them to know. I wish that we were able to inform them of, about negative tests. But then that creates a whole, that, that opens up a, a big can of worms, right? Because you may not get a hold of them or they, they, they see a missed call, then they call the clinic and there's lots of like back and forth for like a negative screen. Um, we could use um, like MyChart, the, the patient portal that we have to re like manually release the result. But unfortunately, some of the MyChart accounts have been set up so that the, it says it's supposed to be the patient account, but it's actually the parent who has access. So again, we are very mindful of protecting an adolescent's privacy and confidentiality. That's kind of our one of our number one priorities. And so that's why we, we tell them like, we will call you with it if only if there's a positive screen. And how about the logistics of the treatment where you have to send it into a pharmacy? Yes. How, so how we, do you treat the confidentiality of that component? Great question. So we have a when we get a hold of the teen to talk about the results, we explain to them the different options for, for treatment and essentially help them navigate what works best for them. So sometimes the teen is like, oh my gosh, yes, you can tell my parent, like, I don't know what to do. I need their help. Right. And sometimes they actually want us to get the parent involved. And we can kind of explain everything to them together. So I explain that they can come into my clinic because we offer the, the treatment. We have the treatment in clinic for, in fact, for STDs, for gonorrhea and chlamydia. So you can come into my clinic and we can, you know, treat um, you in, in clinic. Like, do you have a ride? Can we tell, sometimes we tell them that they're, that they're coming in for like a urine infection and we're treating a urine infection. Okay. Which True. It is so yes. It's not a UTI, but some parents don't ask questions and some do. Um, again, is there a way that they can come into clinics so that we can ensure that they get the appropriate treatment and answer any questions? Um, oftentimes, you know, I'm treating, so for, for gonorrhea, they need ceftriaxone, they need an IM injection. So that really needs to kind of be in our, in our clinic. So we figure out a way to get them in. For chlamydia, we... I can have a conversation with them about I can I can send it into your pharmacy or I can send it to a different pharmacy if you want to like go and pick up the prescription. Um, I call the pharmacy and I whoever I speak with on the phone, I say this is a confidential medication. And there's a silence. And I say, which means I don't want the parent notified via phone or text that the prescription is ready for pickup. I'm like, so can you remove the parent's phone number and contact information out of the record for this prescription. So the minor can come in and pick up the script. Yeah. Okay. They have a legal right to treatment. Right. Yeah. Okay. The Super. testing and treatment in the state of Connecticut. And then again, does it go through their insurance? Does it bill their insurance? Which potentially could show up if someone asked for all of the prescriptions that was, you know, their mm -hmm. insurance ran through. Or I have some teens who prefer to pay out of pocket. So they pay, I would say like 
a seven day course of doxycycline for the treatment of chlamydia is maybe 30 or $40. Um, so they're able to kind of pay for it. Um, so again, it's kind of walking that through. So you really have to customize it depending on the individual yes. patient and their needs. Yes. So this is yeah. a great seg segue into treatment. Um, how has the treatment for chlamydia changed? I know we used to use mm -hmm. one dose of azithromycin to seven days of doxycycline. Yes. So this change happened. Uh, it was part of the updates to the like 2021 CDC STD treatment guidelines, which is a really great reference. It's available. Um, the, the website's available. It's also available as a free app. So if you type in, you know, CDC STD treatment guidelines, it's a free app um, you can look up on your phone. So they made this change with the updated um, version of the recommendations because they were seeing um, higher treatment failure rates among men who were treated with azithro for chlamydia, as well as um, the azithro didn't clear rectal infections of chlamydia in both males and females. So doxycycline became the preferred uh, treatment. So it's a seven day course, which is much harder to take. I did, when I when this change happened, I looked into it some more and there someone had mentioned that even if like 50% of the doses of doxycycline are missed, it's still an effective treatment. I don't tell patients that, right? I, I, no, I, but I think it's just like with most antibiotics, we tell them to give it 10, we're lucky if they get it eight. So, right. right. So um, they do actually, I was just, when I was just checking the CDC recommends that um, the seven day course should be like ideally dispensed from your office and the first dose given in the office. And um, so we have, you know, supplies of, um, of doxycycline so that we are able to do this. We're able to give the supply from our clinic, but oftentimes we're calling them, you know, a result comes back. I think it's different when a patient comes in as symptoms of an STD, of a probable STD. And ideally you just start, you test them and treat, start treatment at the same time. Okay, great. But in what clinical is, practice, a lot of times it's afterwards. Sorry. What is expedited partner therapy and how do you prescribe for it? Yeah. So EPT is um, when you when you provide treatment for your patient's partner to treat gonorrhea or chlamydia or both. So it's again, it's in the state of Connecticut, we are legally protected for providing medical treatment with antibiotics to a patient who isn't ours, but we're, it's the patient's partner. And so um, again, similar conversation to when I'm telling the patient about an infection and how to get them antibiotics, I offer and say, hey, I also can send a prescription for your, you know, partner, your boyfriend, girlfriend, or whomever. Um, in the state of Connecticut, all I need is the patient, the partner's name and date of birth. So I can prescribe doxycycline, sorry, first and last name, not date of birth. It's not needed in the state of Connecticut. I send the prescription, I call the pharmacy, I explain that this is like expedited partner therapy they give me lots of questions. I'm like, don't worry. Like the patient's going to pick it up. This is a confidential medication. They are going to pick it out of pocket. I kind of explained to the pharmacy. So you can prescribe the oral doxy. It's a little trickier when they have um, 
gonorrhea, because ideally they would receive an IM injection of ceftriaxone. But for EPT, you can prescribe, um, I think it's a fixed cefepime, one of the cef oral cephalosporins is, is considered an alternative treatment that you could prescribe. But really I would want them to, to see their doctor get ceftriaxone IM, but if that's not an option, then we can provide EPT. Okay. Now, given I know in a lot of the private practices, all we're doing is GC and chlamydia testing. Uh, and if one of those comes back positive, would you then recommend H HIV and an RPR or VDRL when they come back in? You know, yes. So per CDC guidelines, if someone has a positive if someone is diagnosed with any STD, essentially it's recommended to also screen for HIV. And that's when I would also include um, RPR, right? Because they're already, that kind of puts them into a higher risk category where they're going to need additional screening. What is your follow-up of patients who are positive for any of these? Do you see so, them back? So for gonorrhea and chlamydia, the recommendation is to retest them in three months not a test of cure, like you would do if someone was pregnant, so, so different. But essentially, if someone's had an STD, they're at higher risk for being reinfected, either because they didn't complete the treatment or their partner didn't complete the treatment or because they have another sexual partner. So in three months, I bring them back in. I'm typically seeing them for follow-up for something anyway, but, but um, making sure to retest them around the three three month mark. But I would assume once one is positive, you reached a point with a patient that it's, if you wanted to change behavior, change use of protection, having that positive test would be an almost enabler for you to create change. So wouldn't you, would you want to see them back sooner to discuss or no? Do you think that makes any difference? Um, yeah, so you're saying, <clears throat> I mean, I, ideally, yes, but I think it's also hard to, especially if it's confidential, to it's figure out to bring... a way for them to come back in. So I love being okay. like, let's let's follow up on your acne in three months, you know, no, or okay. I'm definitely seeing them for something else, right? For their asthma. You could, you know, let's check in just to make sure that with the, you know, the the change in, in season and weather, let's let's bring you back in. So I'd rather have I, I'd rather have them come in <clears throat> for that. But yeah, in an ideal world, right, you'd have all this extra time to do additional counseling and, and talking about um, behavior change. Okay. And I know we, you addressed it earlier on the, the new Connecticut state law regarding annual HIV testing mm -hmm. in patients. Again, these patients who only were screened to two, we would automatically bring them back to get the HIV screening. Correct. But what you stated earlier was that we may want to do annual HIV screening. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, not that we may, but that this is now Connecticut state law. Um, okay. As of January 1st, um, that we need, and again, it's offering HIV testing at least once a year for patients 13 plus. A patient can decline. It's almost like, you know, opt-out testing. And so opt-out screening. And the, um, I know a lot of pediatricians' offices are figuring out kind of how to navigate this. Absolutely. Um, and, but it is a, a state law for this to be offered for, um, PCPs, primary care providers and in the emergency room. 
Um, the emergency room requirement is beginning next January, but the one for primary care providers um, it has already been been in place. Okay, thank you. Well, Dr. Bennett, I wanna thank you, one, for your you and members of your department for delivering enormous service to our patients. We are grateful. We don't say that enough. Yeah, uh, I appreciate thank it. you so much for this podcast. Any information additive, which you mentioned we'll leave in our, with our CME department, it'll be available at the end of this podcast. So thank you again, and we'll see or hear from everyone next month at our podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having Bye. me.